0: It is good to be back again with you guys this morning. And uh, this is first time, first time in a long time. We're wrapping up a series in the next uh, six to eight weeks we've been calling The Big Story. We started it back last fall where we're going Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story of Scripture all together. Uh, And so this morning we're going to be in kind of two passages really. We're going to be in John chapter 16 uh, and then Acts chapter 1 also. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do so. Uh, If not, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen so it'll be easier for you to uh, follow along. We are going to be jumping ahead a little bit this morning uh, in the big story. Uh, It kind of pains me to do so to move Quickly past the Gospels in the life of Christ, Uh, we're going to be circling back around there in the fall and spending a lot more time there. So have no fear, but uh, I promise you, we were going to be done with the series by the time, uh, by the end of June, and so we we need to move forward a little bit. So Um, in John chapter sixteen, Jesus is going to say something that I think, if we're really being honest, that we're going to have a really hard time believing. Uh, it's this famous scene where Jesus is instructing his disciples and his friends about what life is going to be like apart from him when he leaves this earth and when he goes away. And, of course, they're terrified by that whole concept. Oh, my gosh, Jesus isn't going to be here anymore. And, uh, and he's encouraging them. And he says, fear not, essentially, because when I go, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And it's actually going to be better for you to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than even me standing beside you. And church, you know, let me ask you, like, do you believe that that's true? Like, it's, it, it, we do, but it's it, it's a tough one, right? Like, I think. Uh, have you ever played the game? Would you rather? You ever play that kind of the board game around the the dinner table or anything like that? But I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you, you throw out these crazy scenarios. If you could be one superhero for a day, uh, who would you be? Who would you rather be, Batman or Superman? Right? Uh, who who would say Batman over here? Who would say we got a couple? Who would say Superman? Okay, I didn't see that coming. First hour, like everybody was Superman camp too. I, I had. Uh, that kind of came out of the blue for me. But ladies, let me, ask, let me put it like this. Who would you rather be for a day, Wonder Woman or Joanna Gaines? Right? <laughs> Come on, men, you can't answer this one. I promise you, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Who, who says Joanna Gaines here? Yes. Oh, Zane, you're going to be Joanna Gaines. Okay. Uh, who says Wonder Woman in this scenario? Yeah, that's what I'm talking. Okay, there we go. Um, I mean, we played this. So who, what would you rather drive for, uh, for a lifetime, Ford or Chevy? Who's a Ford, Who's a in the Ford camp over here? And we got in Chevy people. Yeah, we have more Chevy people in the first hour too and stuff. So, um, who, who would you rather have as your quarterback, Tony Romo or Dak Prescott? All right? Who's on Team Tony over here? Aaron Rodgers. That's not an option there, Norb. <laughs> not an option. Who's on Team Tony over here? And we got who, who's on Team Dak? There we go. Okay, we got a little split split decision there. Okay, what about Roger or Troy? Who's going to say that? You got Roger Staubacher, Troy. Roger? Oh, yes, Troy? <laughs> Barton start. you really got to be quiet over there. That's not not an option and stuff. So yeah, I mean we played this. Okay, so what about uh, what about Chuck Norris or Tim Tebow? Last one. Come on. Come on. Chuck Norris or Tim Tebow? Who's on team Chuck? Chuck? What? Who's on Tim, Tim Tebow's team here besides me? I wear the orange socks like every single Sunday. You got to I promise you, Chuck is not hitting home runs at double-A baseball <laughs> eight years after he stopped playing baseball. I'm just going to put that out there. So I, I'm on definitely Tim T. But we play this game a little bit, right? And, and we played these different scenarios, like who would you rather be? And essentially, like, that is the question that Jesus is putting on the table before his disciples, like who would you rather have? Would you rather have the Holy Spirit inside of you or would you rather have Jesus standing there beside you? And you got to understand, like, he's asking this question at a time when his disciples have seen everything that he can do, right? This is the Jesus that just raised Lazarus from the dead. Like, this is the Jesus that makes the blind able to see and the lame able to walk and the deaf able to hear. This is the Jesus that turns uh, water into wine. It's the Jesus who's able to feed 5,000 people uh, with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? Like, none of this makes any sense. So how in the world can Jesus sit there and say it's actually going to be better for us to have the Spirit inside of you? Rather than Jesus beside you, that's what I want to ask. That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. So, again, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter one, and put your finger in John chapter sixteen, we're going to go over there uh, together. I do want to catch us up a little bit of where we are in the big story. We have turned the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I want to remind us what when we do that thing, we're talking about the exact same God from beginning to end, right? We believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons: the Father, the Son. And the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Yet they have eternally and always existed in one essence, one God. And so when we're talking today about the Holy Spirit, like you got to understand, we're not talking about some random impersonal force or anything like that. We are talking about a specific personality who can be grieved, a specific personality who can be followed. He can be resisted. He can speak all because he is God. Okay? And so, brand new testament we're coming into here in the big story, but the exact same God. Uh, also dealing with the exact same mission. He is redeeming the ends of the earth, and he's doing it largely through his covenant people in the nation of Israel. Um, all we're talking about is a brand new covenant that's about to come into place as we're moving from the old covenant uh, into the new, and it's exactly what we're going to be seeing here in the book of Acts. A great way to think about the book of Acts is a transitional book that is going to be taking us from life under the old covenant into life under the new covenant. And so a lot of what we're going to be seeing here in these early stages is going to be very uh, unusual behavior and unusual things uh, that could be a little bit confusing. So let's pick it up here in chapter 1. I'll I'll show you what we're talking about. Um, It's picking up here right after Jesus' resurrection. He's spending 40 days with his disciples and his followers, and he's teaching and equipping them for everything that they need to know in order to continue on uh, the mission of God. And here's how it picks up in chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, what's the former book, by the way? The Gospel of Luke, right? Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's continuing. This is part two of his the gospel narrative, essentially. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for, my gift, for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I want to stop right there because this is one of these uh, confusing matters that often gets, gets kind of uh, messed up here in the early stages of this chapter. When, when, when he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right, he's making this contrast here between what he just said and John's bapti- baptism, which was of water, and the baptism that's going to be coming in the Holy Spirit. The word baptism uh, or ba- baptized is baptizo, which literally means to be fully immersed in something, which is why we practice full immersion in water baptism here for new believers. You're fully immersed in water. And what Jesus is doing is he's making this comparison between what John was doing in his baptism of repentance and what the Holy Spirit is about to do 10 days from now in the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, meaning you and I are going to be fully immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is really, really clear about this. He's going to explain later on. Uh, this is going to be about 20 years later that Paul's going to come in. And he's going to write. He's going to write this and make it very clear theologically what's taking place here. Chapter one, verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, all to the praise of His glory. So. When you and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence inside of you. Paul's gonna also say that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so don't be confused about what's taking place here. This is the beginning of a new era, the beginning of a new covenant and a new age. The Holy Spirit is gonna be coming in chapter two upon grown men and women who are already believers and upon communities uh, that are gonna be experiencing this thing for the very, very first time. So we're not talking about a subsequent later on on baptism that you and I need that's different from the one that you may have already experienced when you first came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? This is one of these very, very difficult and confusing passages about this. This is not a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit taking place. This is unique what's taking place here in chapter one and the early stages of Acts as the Holy Spirit comes into the scene to fulfill the ministry and to continue the ministry of what Jesus began there. Um, and so he picks it up in verse six and uh, it says that then they gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they were expecting. They were expecting this political savior who's going to come and make Israel great again. And who's going to come and unify everybody here and elevate them in really, really powerful ways. And so uh, here's what he says. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said this, as he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I love this scene. Can you imagine like being here at this point in time? Verse 10, they were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. Can you imagine being one of the disciples at this point in time, seeing everything that they're seeing right here? Like, it's not enough that they've experienced and talked with the resurrected Christ, had 40 days with him. I mean, they watched him crucified, dead, and buried. Now they're, they're, they're having life for 40 days with the resurrected Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden they're watching him ascend into the heavenlies there. Like, I, I just think that that's a fantastic picture there that I don't know that I would really uh, get over very much. This past week at our staff lunch, um, Dawn Moody asked our staff the question. She goes, okay, here's a scenario. If you, had a, if you had a time machine, and you can go back to any point in time in history uh, to be able to experience, from the, experience it from the point of a spectator, meaning you just go and watch or see anything that happened in history, where would you want to go and why? And, of course, staff, were talking about all kinds of different things. We're talking about, like, I would like to be there when, the, you know, when Christopher Columbus discovered America and all these different kinds of things. And one staffer was like, I would like to go back and relive the toddler years of my kid's life. Uh, I think she was the only one saying that one. And um, right, other people were like, I'd like to go back and see what Abraham Lincoln was like and what the Civil Rights Movement was like and all these different things. One person was like, I want to go back to 1939, the last time that the Texas A&M Aggies, we won the national championship. And uh, it was the last time we've ever won a national championship and will not be our last time, I promise you. But, of course, I'm saved, of course. And so I'm thinking, okay, those are terrible answers. Like, I want to see resurrected Jesus and I want to see this ascension here, Right? Of course, I'm kidding. I think a few of them are actually saved and stuff. But, like, like that's, what's, that's, what I'm, that's what's happening here. It's like resurrected Christ 40 days in a row, seeing him ascend into the heavens. How in the world do you get over an experience like this? I mean, one of, one of, the, one of the questions that's confounded historians forever is, is how in the world did the church explode upon the scene in those early years? I mean, especially when you're looking at the people that were involved in this thing. I mean, it's not exactly the, the who's who of, of, of influencers in that day. We're, I mean, they're the B-teamers, right? Zane talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're talking about untrained fishermen and tax collectors and, and tent makers and things like that. Like, these are not the key influencers of the day. On top of that, the church explodes on the scene in this era where the Romans wanted to squash out everything that had to do with Christianity. Like, they were openly antagonistic and openly persecuting the early church. None of it makes any sense. And you've got to understand, at this point in time, when Jesus is speaking with his disciples, like there might be, he, he appeared to over 500 people. There might be around 500, less than 1,000 believers at this point in time when, when Jesus is speaking to him. But in the next 300 years, by the time it's 350 AD, there's nearly 30 million believers on the scene. We're talking about nearly 53% of the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity in direct opposition to what they were trying to do. It's why Yale historian Kenneth LaTourette, he he put it like this. He said, The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for an underlying cause. It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have been a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else can explain the unrivaled success of the early Christian movement. In church, it's exactly what we're seeing here in Acts with the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what he came to do, which is also exactly why Jesus said, you better stay there in Jerusalem and wait. Church, I promise you, at this point in time, after being with the resurrected Christ and, and, and listening to him teach about the kingdom of God for 40 days, after, after walking with him for three years, seeing everything that he can do, watching the, what the blind able to see and the lame able to walk and the deaf able to, to hear and seeing everything that he's done, all of his authority and all these different things, I promise you, like, they are bursting at the seams, ready to go and engage the mission that God has just given to them. But here in this passage says, you better slow down and you need to wait. In other words, you've had all the greatest teaching in the world, and you've had the greatest teacher. You've had all the different experiences that anyone could ever possibly want. You've had every privilege in the world, but the one thing that you're missing is power. It's exactly what the Holy Spirit came to bring, power to change spiritual realities that you and I could never, ever, ever touch. Church, nothing else can explain 30 million conversions in 300 years in the middle of opposition with the most powerful governor in the world trying to squash it out. And it's got nothing to do with your personality. It's got nothing to do with being an influencer. It's got nothing to do with money and all of these different kinds of things. It has everything to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit inside of you really is better than having Jesus stand beside you. I want to get really specific, and I want to talk about two reasons why that is, why the, what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you, but... Uh, the first one, I think, is really, really simple. And you're going to see this at the end of chapter 16 and, and even the very beginning of chapter 1. But number one, the Holy Spirit empowers us to change, right? We're not just staying the same. And, and like It's a living, dynamic being who is coming in and changing people from the inside out. He, he is empowering you to change. And when we're talking about change, we're not just talking about, hey, just, just gradual increases over the course of time, although that is exactly what he often does. But we're talking about the ability for 180... or 180 degree, complete sweeping changes inside your life. And as I was thinking about this this, this past week, um, I was just wondering if, like, if anybody needs to hear that, that he, he empowers you to change. Like it's not just, I, I wrestle with that a lot as I'm looking at this and I'm going, yeah, the Holy Spirit can change. Like we agree with that, we believe that. He can, he can absolutely change other people, but like someone may need to hear this morning that he can actually change you. And the thing that's, that's lingering in your mind and in your heart and the thing that you've never told anybody about or the thing that you've kind of come before the Lord day after day after day and said, this is the last time. This is the last time, God, I'm never, I'm, 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 I'm never gonna be the same. I promise you, God, I'm done with this thing in the past and then it comes up again and again. That thing that's an impossibility in your mind, like maybe you need to hear that the Holy Spirit has the power to change even you. Or maybe it's your prodigal son or your daughter or Maybe it is your neighbor or your friend or something like that, but that's what the Holy Spirit came to do. I'll never forget, a number of years ago, I was sitting in the office at Northwest Bible, and this man walks in the doors, and he's frantic about the entire thing. And he's asking for a minister to, to speak to, and of course, I was there that day. And so um, he comes into my office, and the guy's panicking, and he's just like, he's flustered, and he's all these different kinds of things. And we start talking, and he explains to me that he's actually on the way to the courthouse to finalize his divorce. And he goes, I'm driving to the courthouse to finalize my divorce, and, and I feel like God won't let me drive there. And I felt compelled to stop at the nearest church and just talk with somebody about it. And he comes in there, and we start talking. He explains to me the entire dysfunction of their marriage. There's multiple adul- adulteries on both sides of the thing. There's addictions here and there. There's financial just mess all over the place. And There's hurts and there's pains and there's all kinds of dysfunctional non-communication that's taking place and the guy's broken and he's just lamenting his inability to change or to do anything about his situation. And we sat there and just listened and just let him cry and just let him be a mess for a long time. And we eventually just get into the, to the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people out of, of lifestyles of bondage and shame and all of these different things and to set people free. And by the end of our time that afternoon, he just, he, he's on his knees and he's confessing these things before the Lord and he's repenting of his sin. And he's saying, I don't know what's going to take place when I'm going to hand it over to the Lord. And he gives himself to the Lord. And he didn't go to our church, so I didn't know the guy. And we happened to run into him a number of years ago, or probably just a few years ago, actually. And uh, I was asking about how things went and how the rest of the story went. And he explained how he went and he met his wife, and they did not go through the divorce that day. They went back home, and he just wept like a baby in front of her, confessing his sin before her and asking for forgiveness. And the crazy thing, he says, is he's like, that's what she ended up doing, too. She began confessing and repenting of all these different kinds of things, too. And, and then all of a sudden, a little bit later on, they get into a Christian recovery program, re-engage And they began working on their marriage again, and the Holy Spirit begins to to draw them together. And he said at that point in time anyway, they were still together, and they were flourishing in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, the reason I'm saying that is because whatever that thing may be inside of you that's lingering in your mind and your heart, then you're saying, no, 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 this is impossible. The Holy Spirit, it is exactly what he came to do. And I want you to see this, John chapter 16, Jesus is going to teach you exactly what's taking place inside of you, which we can't always put words to. Here's what he says, John 16, very truly I tell you, it is for your good I'm going away. Church, do you believe that? It's actually good for you that he's not standing right here, because unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I bet that was often the case, don't you think? Verse 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he, he, what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Church, in this one little conversation that Jesus has with the disciples, like uh, here's what he's saying is going to take place. Verse 7, I'm going to send you your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, and he is actually called the Helper. The Holy Spirit is your helper. From beginning to end, he is the with us God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. In the new covenant, he gives us the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of you forever, and his name is the helper. The Greek word is parakletos, which is also translated advocate there. But the picture here is a good and honest lawyer who may be uh, a good and honest. Sorry, I'm not laughing. A, A good and honest lawyer that is pleading your case for someone who's in need. Like That's who he is. He is the helper. He is the, the paracletos. He is the advocate. In the Hebrew, uh, the word is Azer. And 16 out of 19 times that that word is used in the Hebrew, it's used of God who is our help, especially in times of battle or in times of war or in times of intense need. He is our God who comes to help and fight for us and fight with us. By the way, ladies, that is the exact same word that is used to describe you in Genesis when, it says, when God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to make a helper who is suitable for you. He's not talking about necessarily an admin assistant or anything. He's talking about a co-laborer in the mission of God who is going to come alongside and go do battle against the spiritual forces of darkness that are, uh, that are going on in this world. And what he's saying here is that, that I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who is your helper. It's his name. It's what he's come to do. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit also convicts the world of sin and righteousness. Right? Sin and righteousness. So it's not just sin. It's not just that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. You're bad. That was wrong. That was wrong. Like, no, no, no. It's, it's I'm going to convict you of sin, but also where righteousness is found. In other words, he lets you feel the guilt of your sin, but he's not leading you into shame, right? Like, we've talked about this extensively, right? Like, guilt is the thing that says, I've done something bad, and, and shame is the thing that says, I am something bad. It's an identity issue, Right? And what the Holy Spirit comes and does is he corrects the situation, corrects your thinking, the things that are going on inside of your soul so that you can deal with guilt appropriately in a healthy way that's going to lead to repentance and that does not lead into shame. It reminds you that if you are actually in Jesus Christ... Then your righteousness has been taken care of. There is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are a new creation. He has taken care of those identity issues. He calls you holy. Not because you are holy. But because he has imputed and given you his righteousness. Which you did not have yourself. The righteousness element has been taken care of. And that's what the Holy Spirit allows you to do. You can deal with the guilt of your sin. Because the safety of your security has been taken care of and so that I can repent of that sin and I can come back and I can actually have that change that he longs to bring inside of you. It's a lot of different words and a lot of different ways to say a very easy thing. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts you of sin and righteousness and that you're actually okay. He says a very similar thing, verse 13. He is the spirit of truth who guides you into all truth. It's what he does. He's the spirit of truth that comes to guide you into all truth. Have you ever had that, that, um, that experience where... Maybe it's your second time through the Bible. We'll just assume that that's true, right? You've been reading the Bible, and you're going a second time around. You're going, oh, my gosh, I never saw that before. I never saw that before. Oh, my gosh, like, I read this, and it's like he was speaking directly to me. And, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that that's what he was talking about inside of my life. Have you had that experience before? It's like, I've read this passage 8,000 times before, but like, there's something fresh and there's something new about this. And, and it's like the Holy Spirit is just like teaching me and training me inside and applying it in ways that I'd never thought about before. Easily one of my favorite people in the world is a, um, is a, is a lady named uh, Betty Snell. And uh, I, I've shared with you guys about her before. She's probably around 90 years old now, but uh, Betty was a longtime 50 year missionary. Uh, with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and she spent her entire ministry in the jungles of Peru working with a completely unreached people group, uh, helping them develop a written language that they can understand their very first dictionary and their very first copy of the New and Old Testament. Uh, That's her life work, an entire 50-plus years living in the jungles of Peru. And about 10 years ago, her her husband passed away, and they moved back to Dallas and uh, was going to church in Northwest. And And what I loved about Betty is like anytime you'd preach, she would come up after the service, after the first, she she would sit in both services and she would come up and, and she'd be like, she'd be like, Aaron, look at, look at all these notes. Like, look what the Lord was teaching me in that first service. Like here's, I'd never seen this before. Like the woman, church, I'm telling you, the woman spent her entire life translating every single word of scripture into a written language for people that did not have scripture. Like I promise you, she had read that thing hundreds of times. And after that first service, she's sitting there going, like, you won't believe what the Holy Spirit taught me. And then, like, here's how he applied it to me, and I'm repenting of this, and and he convicted me that I need to change. Like, what does a 90-year-old woman who spent her entire life serving people in the jungles of Peru need to repent of? Like, she's essentially a saint at that point, right? Like, every service. And then the second service, she comes, she's like, oh, my, Aaron, look at this. Like, this is what the Holy Spirit was teaching me and convicting me of right here. And, and, And he just spoke to me new and fresh right here. Church, that is what the Spirit does. He is always teaching. He is always leading. He is always correcting. He is always convicting you of sin and that's okay because he's also convicting you of righteousness at the exact same time. Church, that is the ministry and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why 50 days earlier, Peter is, is cowering in shame and fear as he's just denied even knowing who Jesus is. And now by the time Acts chapter two comes around, the Holy Spirit has filled him and empowered him and he's preaching the word of God with boldness. And it says that the Lord just keeps adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Like, Peter's a brand new man. Like, Acts chapter 6, I mean, Stephen's on the scene, and he's a brand new leader in the church. And by chapter 7, like, he's the first martyr, and it just launches the church into the scene. Like, chapter 7, like, Saul is sitting there, and he's, like, leading the persecution against the Christians. And by chapter 9, he's met the resurrected Lord. The Spirit has filled his life. And then he goes on to become the most effective missionary that the world has ever known. And he writes nearly half the New Testament. Including things like Galatians chapter 5 where he, he describes what's taking place. And he says, as you and I are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to produce his life inside of you. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and, and faithfulness and self-control. It's what he does. And so when he writes that passage, church, you got to understand he's speaking from first-hand experience. Like he didn't know anything about love. Like, he was the complete opposite of love until he met the resurrected Savior who filled him with his Holy Spirit and began to produce his life inside of him. Joy, are you kidding me? Like, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a, he was a zealot. He was the empty, whitewashed tombs that Jesus loved to just rebuke over and over and over again. He had no idea what joy was about. Patience? <laughs> I can't imagine Paul having much patience, Right? Like, are you kidding me? Like, peace. He's breathing venom and anger and disruption inside of his soul all the time. Until that day on the road to Damascus when, when, when he meets the resurrected Jesus and his spirit comes and he changes him forever. Church, it is the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of you to change you. You want to know why so many of us have a hard time believing that the Holy Spirit inside of you is actually better than Jesus standing beside you? I think for years and years and years, a lot of us are just resistant to change. Man, it's what he came to do. I told you guys this before, but we're very, very honest. Like, our first year of marriage was very difficult for us. And uh, we, we got married right out of college. <laughs> like, I remember we were having these arguments all the time. We couldn't talk. We couldn't connect very well. And we were just struggling, especially that first year of marriage. And uh I remember having this thought, I was like, Lord, what's wrong with her, right, and she just kept looking at me, she's like, Lord, what's wrong with him, I married a psychopath, and um, I really thought that, I was like, what's, what's going on over there, I'll never forget being at that uh, first marriage conference we went to, we ended up going to the exact same marriage conference, I think five or six more times in our, in our life, because it was that helpful, um, But I remember sitting there that first time and just all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just awakened my blind, stupid eyes to, hey, maybe the problem is is here. Like, maybe it's you, bro. Maybe it's you. I don't know why it took so long to think about that or to, to even consider that possibility. But I remember coming home and completely changing the way that I pray. Don't change these circumstances. Don't change her. God, just here it is, you and me right here. Holy Spirit, would you come and change me? You say that you will produce your life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. God, would you change me? Church, maybe that's you. You come in today and you're sitting there going, okay, change is great. I know that he changes things, but maybe you've never even considered the possibility he needs to change you. And you need to start praying and saying, God, would you come and would your spirit come and give me love? Would you let me love my spouse? Would you let me love my children? Would you let me love my parents that are difficult? Would you let me love my in-laws that I don't understand? Would you let me love my neighbor that plays their music really, really loud? Would you let me love my coworker who's antagonistic to me all the time? Would you produce your life inside of me? And would you let me be a person who knows how to love really, really well? Peace. Lord, I'm, I'm filled with fear and anxiety all the time. Like it controls me. Like I dream about it and I wake up and my heart's beating a thousand miles per hour and I get stressed about all these different things. Would your spirit come and would you give me the peace which surpasses all understanding, which will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus? I can't do it myself, but spirit, would you come and would you give me your peace? Patience. My kids are driving me nuts. My family's driving me nuts. These people over here are driving me nuts. Would you give me the patience that I need that I cannot create myself? Joy. Joy. I'm in depression right now, just depressed. I can't even see the sun come up. God, in the middle of that place, would your spirit come and fill me with joy that's rooted in who I am and you and everything that you've done on my behalf? That would be powerful enough to overcome the circumstances and the feelings that I'm experiencing this time. Holy Spirit, would you come and produce your life inside of me, inside of me? It's what he came to do. It's who he is. He he comes and he empowers you to be able to change. Even that impossible thing that's lingering in the back of your mind, you're sitting there going, nope, not me. The other thing that he does is he not only empowers you to change, but he empowers you to go and be the change that you've been praying for in other people. Right? It's what he's saying there in verse 8. Verse 8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Instead of one man, Jesus, going and doing all of the work of evangelism around this world, he's saying, I want to fill billions of believers all around the world throughout the course of time with my Holy Spirit. And we're going to have a billion different witnesses all around the world to the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into their life. I love the word that he uses here to describe our call. He says, you're going to be my witnesses it's a legal word uh, that refers to someone who has seen or experienced something so compelling that they have to testify about what that thing is. That's what he's saying our mission is. in church, like, kids get this all the time. I think they're born with this innate ability to like, testify about whatever. I go and pick up Caleb from school, and I'm like, Caleb, buddy, how was your day today? And he's like, you will not believe what Amelia did today. She did not want to share her toys. And my teacher wanted my fruit roll up. And they did not let us talk on the playground over here. And they did this, that. I mean, they are born to testify about the things that are important to them and the things that carry weight and authority in their life. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying right here, that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to give you power so that you can be effective in your testimony about the life-changing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come and he's going to give you power in order to do those different things. By the way, back in John chapter 16, verse 14, uh, again, Jesus describes like this is one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to testify and give glory to the name of Jesus Christ. It's what he says there in chapter 16, verse 14. It's why every single time when the Holy Spirit fills people in the New Testament, he does it for the work uh, of the mission of God and for the glory of Jesus' name. Every single time it's not just about the ecstatic experience, it is about elevating the name of Jesus Christ for gospel and kingdom expansion purposes. Luke 115, John the Baptist says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began proclaiming the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 141, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she proclaims God's favor over Mary. Luke 167, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies about the coming glory of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes uh, at Pentecost and, and it begins to fill different believers and they begin declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and singing his praises in languages that they don't even speak. And all the different people that are also gathered there that day for the feast for, for, for Pentecost, uh, like they're understanding the gospel in their own languages because it's all about the elevation of the gospel. Acts 4, 8, Peter's filled with the spirit and he preaches to the rulers of that day that Jesus is their only hope of salvation filled with boldness. 4.31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit of God and they begin to speak the Word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and immediately he begins to preach to the synagogues. And I can keep going on and on and on. But church, that is what he came to do. The Holy Spirit's job is to change us from the inside out and to fill us with his power so that you and I can be effective witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we could be the change that we have always prayed for in our lives. It's why Paul's going to say, Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to say, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Like he commands this whole thing. It's not this passive thing that we hope may or may not come upon us at some point in time, but he commands it. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way that people pursue uh, being drunk with wine and filled with wine in such a way that wine comes in and controls us from the inside out. Pursue being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I I love how Dr. John Walvoord, former president of DTS and very conservative person, he talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit this way, just so that you know this is safe. Uh, The filling of the Holy Spirit is not about us getting more of the Holy Spirit. You understand that? The filling of the Holy Spirit is not about us getting more of the Holy Spirit. As Kyle Martin always says, there is no JV Holy Spirit, right? There is no amateur, childish Holy Spirit. You have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is not about us getting more of the Spirit. It is a question of the Holy Spirit empowering and getting more of us. In contrast to the permanence of the new birth in the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we all have, if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a repeated experience uh, whereby we become active and effective participants in the mission of God. Church, there's a great example of how to pursue this. Acts chapter 4.31. Check this out. This is just after Peter and John had been uh, imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Okay, They'd just been released, and here's what their gathering does. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace is so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there was no needy persons among them. Church, that's all that happened. There's no song and dance, there's no conjuring up of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was already there. All they did was gather together in unity, pray. And then be willing to go and be the change that they were probably just praying for. First thing they do is speak the word of God boldly. They continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and then they're filled. Church, those are the kinds of people that the Spirit of God loves to fill. It is not people who not only pray for change, but people who are willing to go and be the change that they've prayed for. It's Linda Cole who prays constantly for all the refugees that are here in Dallas. And then not only just pray for them, but she goes and she serves day in and day out, sharing the gospel and building them up. It's Ellie Langston, who not only prays for our surrounding community, but then gathers them over at our building over there and shares the gospel with them all the time and continues to love them and build them up. It's it's Roland and Sydney who, who, who not only pray for our community but are willing to go into our community, pray with people, and share the gospel with them. It's Kyle and Laura who have given their entire lives, traveling the entire world, uh, mobilizing the church body to go in to share the gospel. It's Wendy Howard who will talk and share with anybody in the world who's willing to listen about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's Gary and Nita. It's Marty it's Ken, it's Kay, it's Cat, it's Jesus and Marion who are serving the poor in our area day in and day out. It is men and women who not only pray for change but are willing to go and be the change that they've been praying for. That's who he loves to fill. And here's the beauty of it. When, when, church, when, when the Holy Spirit fills you, like, he takes care of all the heavy lifting. <laughs> I mean, he just does. It gets absurd all the time. Like when the Holy Spirit fills and the Holy Spirit goes before you, like it's absurd the things that just fall into place. I I mean, I love reading the book of Acts. I could come back to it over and over again because it's just filled with stories like this. But Acts chapter 8, easily one of my favorite ones is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know what I'm talking about here? Acts chapter 8, like Philip is going and doing his thing, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just just really bizarre way just leads him to go and take a detour from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He takes a different road, and he doesn't know where he's going, but the Holy, it says that the Holy Spirit leads him down this path. And it's there on this path that he goes and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading a scroll of Isaiah, right? And he's going, oh, I guess that's why the Holy Spirit led me down this path. And he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And all Philip does is he goes up to him and he says, hey, what you reading there? He's like, oh, Isaiah. He's like, well, that's interesting. He goes, do you know what it's saying? And the Ethiopian eunuch looks at him and he's like, how could I unless there's someone here to explain it to me? And he's like, well, I happen to be here ready to explain it to you. How about that? And here's what it says, verse 32. This is the passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Who's this describing? This is is describing Jesus. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch turns to Philip and says, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Is it himself or is it somebody else? He's like, I'm glad you asked. Then Philip began with that very passive of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Church, what I'm telling you is that when the Holy Spirit fills you, when the Holy Spirit goes before you, like, he takes care of the heavy lifting. It's absurd the things that he does. But Aaron, I, wait a second. Like I thought that like street evangelism and stranger evangelism does not work. It works when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're following his lead. Have you ever had these experiences before where He just like, maybe you're ready and you're, you're willing to go and you're not just praying for change, you're willing to be the change, and, and he just like sets everything up perfectly for you. Like I promise you, church, if we could see the things that the Holy Spirit was doing every time we pray, we would not stop praying. You believe that? <laughs> I'll never forget the first time, I think it was the very first time that I ever shared my faith. I was probably a senior year of high school, I started getting serious about my relationship with the Lord late in sophomore year of high school, and we were coming off this week of camp, we were doing this camp for all the junior high students in our, in our community, and um, I went to McDonald's late at night after one of the nights of ministering to all these kids, and, and uh, I was there with a few other people, and we were kind of writing notes to some of the campers and things of that nature, and, and I had this journal. I just started journaling and writing out prayers to the Lord and things like that. And I'm sitting there at McDonald's. It's an empty McDonald's at night, and, and I just started like writing out all of these different things, and we're praying, God, would you move at Rec Week this past week so that all these kids would come to know the Lord? And I'm there with a few friends, and we're kind of praying some of these things and writing them out and things like that, and all of a sudden, this group of guys from my old high school, much older than me, they come in McDonald's, and I was very intimidated by them. They were this crowd that I was, was kind of unattainable, and uh, I wasn't there with them. And so um, they come in, and they're causing a lot of ruckus, and, and uh, they're very noisy and loud. And they go sit kind of across the restaurant there, and, and I'm writing all these things. Lord, would you change this community? Would you change all these kids? Would you change all these things? And I just stopped, and I kept looking up, and I kept looking up and making eye contact, and I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> And I remember just wrestling. Have you ever had these times? You're like, oh, gosh, there's that sinking. I know, I know that that is, like, he is leading me to go talk with these people. No. I'm like, that is painful. And I just wrestled with it for a little while. And I turned to my friend, and I was like, bro, I, was like, I think I'm supposed to go talk with those guys and tell them about Jesus. I've never done this before in my life at this time. And in, in, in that kind of a way, and was terrified. And he's like, I don't think you're hearing that right. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, mean, I, I think I am, though. And I remember kind of going in this fa- in this haze in my mind, kind of going, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And I walk over to them, and they're all kind of joking and cutting up at the tables and stuff. <laughs> I just walk up, and I was like, yeah, I know this is really weird, but um, I think I'm supposed to come and tell you guys about Jesus. And they silenced. All right, have you seen this? Where, like, I've told very similar stories before because it seems like the Holy Spirit has a way of doing this over and over again. Like in these matters and in these times where it makes no sense for someone to sit there and listen to you. And you're sitting there going, okay, stranger evangelism, uh, uh, street evangelism, any of these kinds of things. Like like that doesn't make sense. Like no one listens to that kind of thing. He does when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going ahead of you doing all the heavy lifting. And I remember sitting there kind of going, all I said was, uh, I think I'm supposed to tell you about Jesus. And I'm not kidding you. Like their demeanor changed. The conversation stopped. One of the guys pipes up and he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that he's going to want anything to do with us. And I was like, I, let's talk about that. And for 30 minutes, I'm not kidding you, these guys, they just silented and they, got, they quieted down and we had this conversation about the Lord that was powerful and meaningful. And When the Holy Spirit fills you, when the Holy Spirit goes before you, he, he does the heavy lifting for you. None of it made any sense. It makes sense that these older guys would pay attention to a young kid in a McDonald's and be ready to have a spiritual life-changing conversation about the things of God. I'll never remember, forget during Revive Texas, we were at um, went to one of the malls. Uh, what's the old one up near Plano that's abandoned? No one goes there anymore. Yeah, I think we were going there that day, kind of hoping no one would be there, right? We <laughs> walk in. And uh, first couple, I see this, we see this couple, and he's a UFC fighter, come to find out later. I knew I recognized him from something, and I'm really glad I didn't challenge him to a fight right there, which I often do that. But it um, <laughs> made no sense. Like, he's talking, and I ask if we could pray, and we start having this conversation. And I was like, what are you guys doing here today? Like, no one shops at this mall. And he's like, yeah, we just wanted to get out. We felt like we needed to get out of the house and just walk around, and we have no reason to be here, nowhere to go. And when we sit there and we just have this this long conversation where one of them prays to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're sitting there going like, "How in the world does that happen?" It makes no sense except that when the Spirit of God fills you, and the Spirit of God goes before you, like He takes care of the rest. He takes care of the rest. Church, how in the world do you go from a thousand believers to thirty million in three hundred years? The Holy Spirit comes on the scene. That's it. The Spirit of God comes on the scene and He empowers people to change from the inside out. And not only that, but He empowers you to go and be the change that you've been praying for the entirety of your life. That's why it's better to have the Spirit of God inside of you than even Jesus inside of you. One of our prayers for this church is that we would be biblically committed. We would know the Word of God inside and out, never falter from it, the exact same time that we would be spirit-filled. Not in competition with each other, not competing, spirit-filled, Bible-committed. Let's pray, church.